Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, following up, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
Welcome to another episode of the Uncovered Podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. With me is Baram Kazi. And we're going to be talking about both genders of ashes um, and the fallout of a World uh, Cup qualifiers that are going on at the moment. I think Zimbabwe just won a game by 300 runs or something. 305. Uh, yeah, it, something like that. They won by a lot of runs uh, <laughs> is probably the best way of putting it. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be talking a lot of, uh, about them as well. Just a shout out to remind everyone that we have a new YouTube page now uh, that is just for the podcast. So that's the best place to subscribe and comment. And if you're in the room today and you want to send a uh, super chat, that's the place to be. Uh, but uh, thank you to everyone uh, for for all their support with the new podcast channel already. But we are going to start with the ashes. So I usually hate covering the ashes. And let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. It is because... From I think 2009 was the first one I covered, and from day one, you just realise when you're following it really closely how much utter nonsense is out there in in the coverage. How many former players just say things because they say things, or say things at events that they don't even think are going to make it to the mainstream media, um, and do, or you know, uh, you know, uh, a player says something and then another player reacts, and then that player reacts to that player, then a third player gets involved. It's just this never-ending cycle of, of nonsense. And it's it's kind of a, a big part of how the Ashes has been run. The weird thing I felt coming into this particular series was it did seem to be focusing a little bit better, a little bit more on the fact that these were two very good teams and that there was hype there for two very good teams. I would say that after losing, England have taken it all the way back to the schoolyard. Uh, you know, Ollie Robertson's article, which... I still don't know if the ECB had read or not. And if they had read, <laughs> that's extraordinary. And if they hadn't read, why had they not seen it before he was going to be doing that that column is is a very, very valid question. Obviously, Zach Crawley said a bizarre thing as well. We had Stuart Broad before um, the series. Uh, it's, it's already got, sort of become this, uh, I don't know, name-calling event, uh, one test in. And the weird thing is, that it was a fantastically exciting test. It wasn't always a good pitch, but it was a very thrilling contest because England was slightly up front all the way through, but Australia kept clawing back. Then you have the incredible last day. And we're sitting here talking about the fact that Zach Crawley um, doesn't seem to understand how cricket works. It's actually quite, you know, remarkable how the build-up was great. This was going to be one of those ashes where, you know, England were going to play basketball and Australia were the World Test Championship, well, finalists and then winners. There was a lot at stake in terms of, you know, who was going to be the better team. And there was a lot of fanfare around it as well. I personally was more excited about this Ashes than a fair few Ashes that have gone by in the recent past. Where there were quite a few where you kind of knew that Australia was going to win it. Especially the ones where they played at home after the Alistair Cook Ashes in Australia, right? Mm. So there was so much riding on this one. And it's just taken this unexpected turn where you've got tons of cricketers just writing articles. I mean, first you have Ollie Robinson who... Not like, he's not amazing with his words. And then he writes this for wisdom. And it shows a lot of like, faux positivity. That's what I would say. I feel like they're defending Bazball more than they're defending their loss. And it's just, it's it's very weird because I don't see the reason for this. It, it draws unnecessary attention. You're already in the press for your send-off of Osman Khwaja mm. and uh, Matthew Hayden is saying funny things about you, <laughs> which was, I love that uh, bit. But I just... I don't understand what this achieves. Why draw all of this attention towards yourself where you've already won 11 out of 14 tests whilst playing this way? So I think it was too early in the piece where they've written all of these things and 
just the manner in which England have come out and defended Baz Ball, I think, has thrown off a lot of people. And what it shows is, you know, you just don't want to acknowledge what you could have done wrong. It's just, oh, we are here for the grand scheme of things where we're protecting Test cricket or saving Test cricket. And this is a new genre of cricket. And we will just continue to play this way because entertainment first. Now, that entertainment first narrative might not work in an Ashes series. Well, I mean, I think you're right. But also just on, on a basic point of, had they come out and said, we made a little mistakes this test. And really, if, you know, Pat Cummins scoops the ball up in the air or, you know, Ben Stokes catch Nathan Lyon, we win this game without having played particularly well, which I think would have been a fair way of putting it. Like, you know, we didn't play our best cricket. We we lost a lot of wickets early on day one. Uh, we, we batted poorly in, in the third innings. We had times where we got a bit obsessed with, you know, we at funky fields rather than actually just trying to bowl. Uh, you know, we didn't bowl over the wicket enough to the guys we needed to bowl. Oh, you know, just plenty of not, normal cricket stuff. I'm not saying any of this is like the end of the world or anything, but just normal mm-hmm. cricket stuff. And then say, but we still bossed this game. And we think yeah. we've worked out, you know, we think we've worked out minus. Steve Smith didn't make any runs. Josh Hazelwood and Scott Boland weren't really factors in this game. There's a lot of positives here for us. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've lost the game, but we think if we play at this level for the next five, four tests, we think we'll win. That's yeah. a fairly normal way. And that still would have fit within the baseball culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like the baseball culture Everything. doesn't have to be claiming a win when you've lost. That's a bizarre part of it. It's absolutely bizarre. And what I don't understand is all these points that they're making about themselves, people would have written about it anyway. People would have talked mm. about Ben Stokes, you know, doing great for Test cricket, how he's forced two results in the recent past, Wellington Basin Reserve, and then this one at Edgebaston. Even though England have lost, they've won, you know, in terms of providing entertainment. People would have said all of this themselves. They England would not have had to toot their own horn, mm. which is where I'm really left dumbfounded. Because as you said, they just, you know, owned up and continued to back themselves and said that, hey, I mean, at the end of the day, had we gotten to Australian wickets at the end, we would have won this test match or something along those lines. Which I also think was also quite, you know, uh, startling how Australia just... Just had, or sorry, England just had one plan against Australia's tailenders. We're just going to bounce them out with 78 miles per hour degrees from Ollie Robinson. And it's just that one short leg fielder, Ollie Pope, you know, taking all of those, or well, being presented with all of those chances. Why have tons of fielders at the back when you can crowd the batter mm. close up, which is very consistent with the baseball way? Imagine those two deliveries where Cummins did actually, you know, uh, give an opportunity to Ollie Pope and watch all, in one of them Ollie Pope kind of got scared or was a little late to react yeah. and the other one was a bit towards his right have two or three fielders in there and your plan would have worked so those things just don't align with the baseball philosophy and I feel like coming out and saying that oh it's feeling like a win anyway regardless and you know this is the way we want to continue to play and all of that sure do that but you can't mm. ignore the flaws in this test match and what cost you the game ultimately. Yeah, it's, it's a bizarre thing. It's also kind of overshadowed what was a great day of test cricket. Mm-hmm. You know, that final day was, you know, so captivating. It, the team sort of overcame the the weird pitch. I mean, you talked about before about the entertainment side of things. You can throw in some of those Pakistan um, been, mm-hmm. uh, tests as well. They've made a lot of results, England, of recent uh-huh. times on, on wickets that no other team would make a result on. There's a lot to like there already. They don't have to sell us on that. Um, and the yes. fact that they've made, they've now lost two of their th- three last tests and their two last major tests by uh, over attacking. And then they come out and say they haven't attacked enough. It's a very, very, it, the whole thing's weird. But that, that last day, I think we did our last podcast like just before it all happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was just such a tension filled day. I remember I must have been, 
I think I was just on the commentary stint for this, maybe the second last half an hour. Um, and then I came off and I couldn't sit down. Like it just, it felt wrong to be sitting down at my desk. So I was literally, this person box is this weird sort of shape and you've got these sort of, it's like uh, the people above you are about a meter and a half above you. Mm-hmm. And so you can stand up behind your chair. And I was literally standing against the wall. And then when something happened, would run forward and write my notes. It was such a, you know, uh, exciting, uh, dramatic way of finishing a test. And as you said before, England have already won the entertainment states, right? Mm. That, again, the fact that this game was close, they they won that as well. So it, it's very, very bizarre. It's also very interesting how it will go into the next fest. I know George Jobel's just put a picture up of the pitch looking bright green. I think you know my theories and all of that. Like most English <laughs> pitches look bright green two days beforehand. I'll be more Not worried. Not a looks... first pitch then, is it? Definitely a bad uh, well, first pitch based on the World uh, Test Trans Championship final. <laughs> I, I, I worry about it is on the morning because sometimes it yeah. can be bright green and stay bright green and Mm. I know, but it, Lords is not particularly known for that. What will be interesting to see, uh, you know, and whether this comes out or not, is what England have asked for, if they've asked for anything, because mm. they got the pitch they wanted in the last one, which weirdly Ollie Robertson didn't seem to um, uh, understand. Uh, not not in, just in, Ollie, by the way, Jared. Like Anderson? we were told that this was a made-to-order pitch by mm. Ben Stokes. This was common knowledge. And then Stuart Broad, ha- Broad has bad yeah. things to say about the pitch first during the game. Anderson writes a piece on it. Anderson's mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm going to defend Ollie Robinson and slam the pitch. And I'm just going to do that because I'm Jimmy Anderson. And it's just not consistent with all of this baseball talk that we're listening to. Mm. If everyone's bought in, then why are, your, why are your bowlers contradicting Ben Stokes and the batters? That, that just doesn't make sense to me. And also, it just seems like this Ashes all of a sudden is now about Australia's pragmatism, I would say, versus England's brash arrogance in the name of baseball. That's what makes most sense to me if I have to just coin it. And that's what we're up against. England are literally fighting for their philosophy now. It's part of their identity. And they feel like them losing the Ashes will be less to do with Australia winning another one rather than a defeat for baseball and the fact yeah. that baseball is broken. So, yeah, it's interesting to see what where they go from here. But I do hope they keep an enforcer in the team. I, I want to see Mark Wood at Lords for sure. Well, because this I think is the that thing. They, they lack that bowler. If, if the pitch is green at Lords, right, and it does do something, you're probably not going to want, but uh, you're probably not going to want Mark Wood in that side, right? The t- the pitch that you probably wanted Mark Wood for was the last one, and I, I think yeah. the same with Australia. I think if Australia, as as much as they love Scott Boland and, and would have backed him, I think if they'd known the pitch was going to be like that, they would have just picked stuff, right? So mm. it, there's some interesting changes to be made uh, from all that. But that the bowling thing, I think, is absolutely fascinating, and uh, and everything else. The one thing I would say is I think England ordered a pitch at Edgebaston and then got a far slower version of the same pitch that they wanted, mm. right? So I do think that they were they were at least assuming there would be some pace on the ball and that you could play your shots a little bit easier. Whereas I think they had to manufacture their shots more than they would have wanted to. But, you know, that's that's what grass does. Man. Also, <laughs> I just... I- I feel like all of these brave declarations, they, they look good. They have that mental edge, you know, or you're making a statement. But, you know, at some point, you've also got to bring in some tactical nows and not just make statements. Sure, it worked really well in Rawalpindi. And everyone mm. will forever remember, remember Ben Stokes for, you know, chasing or, or well set, giving Pakistan a realistic target, dangling the carrot, as, as he said in his own words, and then winning that test match. But now you've cost England two tests with mm. those declarations. Those runs could have come in handy or at least would have, I guess, assured that England don't lose the game. But I think that's not what Ben Stokes wants, right? He wants a result. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I mean, you're right. It's uh, it, it, the, the whole thing's weird. So Will's just put in a comment saying that 
the behavior of baseball is now just whatever England does, um, you know, that they seem to have, it's lost confidence as in I, you know, what's the best part? Sorry, he wrote this much better than I've read it. He said, England is increasingly <laughs> behaving like baseball is just whatever England does at any political moment. And I think that's the issue at the moment. You know, I, so Barney Roney wrote his piece, obviously. And then after that, we have Lawrence Booth's uh, piece about it. And they both come from the two different areas. And obviously, I'm far more in the middle because I really understand why baseball as a mm-hmm. cricket tactic works. But I also understand that if you're not, if, if, if Brennan McCullen and Ben Stokes aren't sitting there all the time evaluating what they're doing and also like working out if there is a ways of tweaking it and improving it, if you're just saying what we did was right, we just didn't do enough of it, usually that's probably the wrong way of looking at mm-hmm. things. And, and, you know, I know you and I are going to be doing a foot marks episode and all this as well. So, you know, we'll leave it there. But I do think that, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting chat around this and where it can go. But I just want to thank a few, a few people in the comments. Inspector Space Time uh, <laughs> is in there. And I see AM and obviously Will is there as well. We're going to have a break. And then after the break, we are changing genders uh, when it comes to the ashes. Uh, you'll listen to Uncovered with Jared and Bayram. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Welcome back to Uncovered. Jared Kimber and Bayram Kazi here. All right. Women's Ashes. So I watched watched and listened, actually, quite a bit of the first couple of days when it was a very, very flat pitch for batting. Um, and then it went all it went all India 1997 um, style pitch where, where it's just like... You can make as many runs as you can in the first innings. The second innings is going to uh, completely fall apart. Obviously, some very good spinners. Yeah, Sophie Eccleston is probably the best women's spinner I've ever seen. I think. <laughs> um, over, I'm trying to think if there's anyone I'm missing in that. Um, I, I don't think Ashley Gardner is quite on that level. Mm-hmm. Ashley Gardner kind of more re- reminds me of the sort of modern kind of Australian cricketers who are just like she could probably be an athlete in any kind of sport that she wanted to and she's you know ended up in cricket and she's kind of working out bowling maybe maybe in a, you know uh the way that sometimes all rounders do later on in their career um uh, tammy bobont obviously made a, a double 100 it's incredible that uh, england had a 10 wicket haul and a double century and mm. they've lost the test and neither of those players have um uh player of the match as well which is absolutely remarkable effort from england to lose uh from that uh situation Again, I I think that we've seen time after time that women's test matches, the wickets are, they don't promote the women's game the best way that they should. And I think it's just because there isn't enough women's first class cricket or there isn't women's first class cricket but there isn't enough women's red ball cricket there isn't enough four and five day women's red ball cricket. And I think the pitches need to be quite different than they do for the men. Um, But having said that, you know, you got a result um, in this particular game uh, and probably the better team wins and we saw some incredible cricket all the way through so th- this is probably and how you felt but at times you know you look at some of the athletes that are out there it's just a whole different generation of women's cricket from an athletic point of view whereas as women's cricket was very skill dependent even recently and now you know you, you look at some of these fast bowlers and you're just like well, these are proper athletes oh absolutely and i mean the biggest examples are right 
playing in this test match, right? You look at Elise Perry. She averages, what, 75 with the bat in test cricket. And she's played like 11 or 12 test matches now. So, like, I think I tweeted the other day that if I had to choose someone to bat for my life in test cricket, Elise Perry would probably give me the best odds because she averages more than Stephen Smith, right? So, I mean, there were lots of good moments in this game. Uh, Elise is 99. Unfortunate that she fell short of 100. Of course, I think Annabelle Sutherland's 137 Mm. at number 8 in the first innings. If you really look back at everything, that might be where the game is won for Australia because uh, ultimately, 80 to 90 runs separated both teams and over there, when Annabelle Sutherland scored that 100, England could have wrapped Australia up quicker than they eventually did and maybe that's where the game was won and lost. But yeah, I think you make a fantastic point about the surface and uh, the numbers for both those spinners. Sophie Eccleston, of course, she's slow left arm, left arm orthodox. She got a tenfer which is great. And it's unfortunate that, well, Tammy Beaumont got a double. Only eight women in the history of Test cricket in the women's game have, have done that. So her double, Sophie's tenfer still end up on the losing side. And I guess, yeah, you have to doff your hat to Ashley Gardner. I think the best ever figures for a woman in Test match cricket are actually by Shaiza Khan. She's Pakistani. In 2004, she got a 13-wicket haul versus mm. the West Indies. Ashley Gardner now has the second best figures ever in a women's test match. So I guess that's where the game was ultimately won because, well, the conditions also suited her. But let's not forget she got a fourfer in the first innings as well. So that's four plus eight, 12. That's good enough to win you a test match. And that's 22 wickets for your spinners out of 40. Uh, just mm. those two, by the way. Just the, the two, main, the two main spinners, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just the two main spinners. So I think that says a lot. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of positives for England. Uh, a few of the, their batters got runs. I know Heather Knight got a 50. Nat Silver Brunt got a 50. Danny Wyatt was good in both innings. Mm. And they look back at this. And uh, yeah, I think what we'll ultimately look back at this test about in the future is that women deserve five-day test match cricket. You got a result. And this has been a point of contention in the past. I remember earlier this year, there was a lot of you know, uproar regarding how uh, four-day tests don't ensure results and women also deserve to play across five days. And I think that was the biggest victory. If I have to remember one thing from this, that, that is what I'll remember. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff too. So, we, so I talked about the pitch and how the, no curator in the world is going to be an expert on this, right? I mean, the only way for that to happen would be if some ground, probably in England, maybe Australia, um, you know, starts producing a lot of women's test matches and, and the curators get more and more used to it, but it's hard. But also the players. So, um, Lauren Bell, I think this is, I think it was Lauren Bell, uh, was on the, yeah, I want to say it was Lauren Bell. I don't think it was the other one. There's two Laurens, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other one's Big Phil. So one's called Bill, Big Phil and the other one's called uh, Lauren Bell. So hopefully I should be able to uh, remember that. But I think it was Lauren Bell who was saying on uh, Kate Cross's podcast that, uh, she hadn't actually watched that much test cricket. So she was watching, I think she was watching the men's ashes, but it might've even been the world test championship uh, to learn about four day cricket and five day cricket. It it, it is such a remarkable thing of we, because we place so much importance on test cricket as, as the pinnacle of the sport that women are playing it, but they're not playing it with the background that that you would normally have. So I've always thought that, you know, in, in general, first-class cricket is such a remarkable thing. Of If you're the best 17-year-old uh, in a lot of different countries, you probably won't have played a lot of multi-day cricket, right? Suddenly, you're signed to a contract and you have to go from probably weekend cricket, school, maybe some midday, mm-hmm. um, uh, midweek cricket as well, to first-class cricket of playing four and five days and you know, three days, whatever it may be in, in your area. And that's a huge jump up. 
But the women are in a very similar situation even when they play test matches because so much of their cricket is aimed towards white ball cricket. And to hear someone like Lauren Bell say, you know, it's, I'm not a test cricket person. And I think, I can't remember who it was on commentary. It might have been Alex Hartley or, or it might have been um, Kathleen Silverbrunt was talking about that, you know, they, so much of, so much of women's cricket for the last decade has been aimed at limited overs cricket. It is what women's cricket has become. And then just every now and again, they play a test. And I remember when Mike Selby, uh, you know, wrote a lot of disparaging comments about a women's test, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, whenever that was. Mm-hmm. A lot of what he was trying to say was, we're making a bunch of women play something that they don't normally play. And, mm-hmm. you know, he may not have written it the best way and he, and he may have made some errors in that piece as well. But the, his basic point, actually makes a lot of sense and you know you you saw it at times in this test match where you were like it, it was less so as you said some of the better players um you know uh he, he, although it's hilarious that you talk about at least perry she's played what uh 11 or 12 test matches but yeah. but you you have and a that little... we're considering as a good sample size in test cricket for women's cricket right we're saying oh 10 and 11 test matches. yeah that's a good number so I remember that the, the, I'm just trying to remember the wickets that I, I really thought about this. So Beth Mooney should have made 200 on that pitch, right? Uh, her shot just looked like a shot that she would play in limited overs cricket with a slightly different field in. Um, uh, there was another one as well. It might have been Talia McGrath uh, that I was thinking of as well, where you were just like, I'm trying to remember, I'm, tr- I'm trying to read up what her wicket was. Um, oh yeah, Talia McGrath looked like she was in that situation where she had now been batting for, let's have a look here, an hour and a half. So how often does Talia McGrath bat an hour and a half against mm-hmm. top-level bowlers, especially against someone like Sophie Eccleston? It's just never going to happen, right? It's so rare that it's going to happen to her. And you watched her. She went into that thing, and I think you'll know what I mean about this. You know, sometimes you watch like a number eight, and they'll be playing in like India or Sri Lanka, and they're playing the mm-hmm. spinners, and they're playing them quite well, but they get into this almost robotic thing of, I'm going to put my foot in roughly the right area, um, mm. you know, and I'm going to, who, who was it? Who was it in the, who was it in the world test championship that did that weird leave that ended up with them getting bold? Was it, um, Pujara? was it Pujara? Or it was Gil and Pujara for India. No, no, no. Uh, against spinners. I think it was an Aussie, oh. um, who did like a half leave. Um, uh, Cameron Green, Cameron Green. Cameron Green. So yeah. I was watching Tali McGrath and, and I was thinking about Cameron Green where, if you are completely, if, if if you've been playing this for seven or eight years, you very rarely play those half shots. Whereas you start mm-hmm. to play a spinner after a while and you almost get hypnotized into just putting your foot into the wrong spot. And, and I was watching both of them. And obviously Cameron Green, you know, new to the sport, just coming through. And Atali McGrath, I just want to see. So she has now played four test matches, right? Now she's mm-hmm. played a little bit more red ball cricket before that. But when you watch the wicket that Eccleston got to, I think the commentator said it was a, a spectacular wicket. I think it pitches, I want to say it pitches middle and leg and hits the top of off, but it didn't fizz. Like Sophie Eccleston bowled way better balls in this game than mm. that particular one. But it's that sort of thing of like you get into a bit of a groove and if you aren't used to batting beyond, you know, an hour or two hours or three hours, that's the sort of stuff that the women cricketers, I just find, I think they find really, really tough. And there were times in this game where I, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I actually thought considering the pitch um, and outside of Gardner and Eccleston, I actually thought that both teams should have scored like 600, right? Mm. Like based on the conditions and how talented the batting lineups are. I mean, where does, 
like Australia's batting goes almost all the way down, right? There's, there's so, I mean, yeah, I mean, about Alyssa Healy Sutherland. comes in at what seven, eight, something like that. Like she comes really, really low, or at least she did in the second innings. Yeah, and, and, and Kim Garth. What? Well, what? I'm just want to have a quick look at her batting record, right? So her batting, uh, batting record is yeah, she averages 23 in T20 international. So some of that would be from mm-hmm. Ireland and would be, uh, you know, put up. But what's she batting at? 10 in this side mm. you know like there's a lot of bat there's a lot of batting uh on on offer in in this particular one but yeah i just thought that that's the biggest problem for me with women's test cricket is it's not that the uh, women who are the right kind of athletes the right kind of cricketers uh right kind of skills anything like that it's just like sometimes you're watching it and you're just going you don't know how to do this because mm-hmm. last week you had to turn on the tv and watch a test match to get some tips right that's not this there's you know that's not the same and that has that does happen in the men's game sometimes. As I said, Cameron Green might mm-hmm. be a good example of someone coming through like that. But I remember talking to Nicholas Buran and, and saying to him, how did you learn how to play one-day cricket And during the mm-hmm. 2019 World Cup? And him just going, um, by playing in this World Cup? And you could see some <laughs> of the innings where he had made mistakes because he wasn't used to pushing forward in the, you know, he... He'd already faced 60 balls. That's more balls he's ever going to face in a T20 game, right? And he didn't know what to do in that next phase. So I think for me, that was one of the more interesting things. You got any other thoughts on on this game? Yeah, I think just to add to that, I suppose what you're or where you're coming from is that test cricket is where skill meets endurance. And whilst the female Mm -hmm. cricketers are now both athletic and very, very skillful, I think that endurance bit is just something that you have to develop muscle memory for. And you, the more you're exposed to it, the more red ball cricket they play, the more they understand the sport itself and how to push on for bigger scores. And I guess maybe all those girls can sit down and have a word with Tammy Beaumont because she mm. say, seems, uh, certainly seems to have that bit ironed out. But here's the interesting part, right? Test cricket in the women's sphere is not a common occurrence. It is a very, very special occasion if women are playing tests. And barring like the top four to five nations, you don't really see them play test cricket at all. Now you're headed into a future where franchise leagues are going to be paying women a lot of money. So how are you promoting test cricket for Mm -hmm. women? I don't see that sort of effort being done because, you know, if you're a Pakistani girl, if you get to play the Fairbreak International and earn a decent amount of money, would you aspire to play a test a test match ever for Pakistan? And mind you, Pakistan haven't played like a test match and or have played three in 19 years and something like that, right? So it's just, I don't see it as uh, a sport for all. It's just mm. at the very top level. And even over there, players like Elise Perry have played 10 to 11 test matches and we're talking about one of the very best in the world. So mm. whilst I'm all for it, all for five-day cricket as well for women and in test cricket, I don't see it surviving like, like text, text cricket for men, for example, in the future. Well, but the thing is that you're right at the moment, it, it's a game for a few people. But the other problem is that what is the point of having test cricket if you don't have a robust first class system mm-hmm. anyway, right? Yep. So, so the point of men's test cricket is that it is the pinnacle of the sport, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, it, it, even for this, even as IPL leagues take over and, you know, uh, foreign leagues take over and all these different things start to happen, you know, in random places in the world and Saudi Arabia and the USA and I know mm-hmm. the Japan Premier League when that starts up, right? <laughs> Even as it happens, first class cricket is still the basis of men's cricket and it mm-hmm. is not the basis of women's cricket. And so, yeah. a- as you said, you know, Tammy Beaumont, you know, she played in another, uh, you know, she played in innings where looked like she could have just batted for as long as she wanted to realistically mm-hmm. until uh, I think Will might have said in the comments there that, you know, that there's certainly um, 
there's certainly an issue when it, uh, you know with with the way that she batted with the tail at times and everything else. But she could have batted as long as she wanted to. And there are going to be people mm. who naturally have that skill. You know, Mitali Raj was probably born, you know, averaging fifty yeah. in first class cricket. Right? That's <laughs> not not you know there are people like that, but a lot of people aren't like that. But the point is that. The pinnacle of women's cricket is really white ball cricket. It's what they spend mm-hmm. all their time preparing for. It's what they get paid for, as you said. Uh, it's quite often how they get their contracts now and all those sorts of things. And so then we say, no, 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 no. Test cricket is the pinnacle, but it isn't for the women's game. And these are two very, very talented teams. And I thought England did mm-hmm. very well to push Australia as far as they did. And obviously Australia's ridiculous uh, the way that that, that that team sets up. But, but on a very... Honest level, like you are not looking. I, I'm not sure I lo- watched that and thought it was a better standard of cricket than mm-hmm. you know I saw in the last World Cup final, right? Right. And 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 the difference is that those players know every single part of their role and what they are doing. And this is not that. It's very talented players playing in something that they haven't done a lot of. Um, so I do think from that perspective, it's it's a really interesting philosophical argument of how you mm. could say that test cricket is the pinnacle for women if you're not putting any of the building blocks around that. And they're not going to, right? As you just said, fair break, uh, Saudi Arabia right. Women's League. Actually, that's probably pretty <laughs> unlikely. Uh, you know, American, <laughs> a women's, um, American Women's League, you know, whatever, the Japan Women's League, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. right? More money will come into various leagues around the world. So how is it ever going to be a situation where you think it is the, the you know, the pinnacle of the sport? And so from that perspective, I, th- I, I find it really, really interesting. Having said that, I still wish, as, a, as someone who enjoys watching it, I wish there was more of it to watch. Like, that, mm-hmm. that, that's not saying I don't like it. It's just very different to what uh, the, the way that the men's game is because it doesn't have that, you know, spine. It doesn't have the same spine. It has a different kind of spine mm-hmm. than men's cricket has. Yeah, definitely requires that infrastructure. If you want test cricket to thrive for women, you need to have those robust systems around the whole landscape of women's test cricket. And that's when you'll get like quality international cricket. Now, I'm not saying this wasn't quality. And I'm agreeing to your point that this isn't the pinnacle of the women's sport because this is not what uh, catapulted the women's sport or women's Mm. cricket into, you know, mainstream media or, or how it made it popular. Probably T20 cricket and ODI cricket did. Even when we didn't have T20 cricket, the ODI days of women's cricket, we didn't have as much popularity as we do today. And everyone is following it now. And I'm not saying that women aren't capable. I'm saying they're very much capable. And I was even uh, congratulating or, or, you know, celebrating the fact that they're getting to play five-day test cricket. But you need more of it to get better at it. And Mm. with the way cricket economy works, I personally don't just see that happening. Agreed. All right, we're going to take a break here on Uncovered. That was Bayram. I'm Jared. All right, welcome back to Uncovered with Jared and Bayram. Um, uh, thank you to everyone. There's lots of comments coming in here. Hopefully, a lot of the comments are coming in on the new YouTube channel, which is Jared <laughs> Podcasts, and not just uh, on the old one. But thank you to everyone who's commentating. Uh, we've got AM Mugs. Uh, who else? We've got Shrikant in there. Obviously, Will is all over. Ayush um, is there as well. Uh, and Prato, Pratomesh. Yeah. yeah, I thought I said Pratomesh. I thought that was a weird name. Um, it comes up smaller. I have to make it big. I'm so far <laughs> from this screen. I that's why if I don't put it up on the main screen, I can't see a damn thing. I've got the biggest screens of all time, and yet I'm still meters away. Um, let us get to the World Cup qualifiers. I suppose before, before we get to the World Cup oh, qualifiers, I just oh. want to pick your brain on one thing. I completely forgot earlier. I think it's a Go. very pertinent conversation and it deserves to be on this podcast. England have called up Rehan Emmett. 
and yes. he's 18 he's played test cricket in pakistan he was quite impressive in pakistan of course the country of his father's birth very emotional moment over there stokes even called his father to the team huddle when they were presenting rehan with the cap and i thought he was really really impressive now i saw rehan ahmed in the under 19 world cup and he was an absolute prodigy like i saw him and i was like oh this is an upgrade on adil rashid and adil rashid has really matured into a very very fine limited overs leg spinner so when i look at rehan i think okay if you're good enough you're old enough i don't think the age thing is a problem but this is an ashes series with all of this unnecessary media attention as well now and he might just get a game depending on how well moin's finger recovers what do you think about it do you think that they've made the right call It's the best ball decision. Um, <laughs> I kind of thought they might go with Will Jacks uh, just because he's a better batter than Rahan at the moment, mm-hmm. and that gave them another way of attacking Australia. Um, I didn't think we'd see probably Liam Dawson or any of the other spinners come through, but you know there was a few options there. My problem with Rahan is that he's a leg spinner and he's going to have to bowl to a. lots of left-handers mm. and i think they're going to feel pretty confident against him i know he bowled well against pakistan but i've seen him bowl a fair bit now you know including you know bowling against bangladesh he's very raw and mm. my worry would be, you said the whole thing you said if if he's um you know if he's uh, good enough he's old enough the thing i don't disagree with that at all but mm. the thing is that he's not a fully developed player at this mm-hmm. point. And I don't mean and and that's a good thing for English cricket because if he continues to go forward, the problems with not using fully developed players of course is that he could get hit out of the attack. He's going to have mm-hmm. to bowl to a lot of left-handers who are going to absolutely you know be eager to face him. I know he's got a good wrong and so it's not the end of the world for him. Um mm-hmm. but yes, I no, so I do worry about it from that perspective uh for his own development and everything else. It's it, but is there a better option, right? It's mm. You know, Moen Ali wasn't a perfect option. No one yeah. no one thought he was going to come in, but at least with Moen Ali they knew he had a bunch of left-handers to bowl to and at times he did bowl very well to them. It would be mm-hmm. harder for the Australians to attack him. It's Moen Ali, he wouldn't have felt daunted. If, you know, the only problem Moen Ali really had was the fact that his finger absolutely fell apart. Mm-hmm. So just so that everyone knows what this means because I don't think everyone quite understands it. Let me just get a ball for one second. <laughs> I had one over here somewhere as well. So don't when you were bowling, <laughs> so when you were bowling spin <laughs> This is it's not old indoor cricket ball. Uh but mm-hmm. when you're bowling spin the seam obviously is uh is quite pronounced especially in England and you're bowling it regularly. Most people who spin the ball properly and bowl a lot of cricket eventually open up a callus somewhere on their finger. Might depending on mm-hmm. where their finger goes it can be anywhere sort of from the knuckle all the way up, sometimes slightly in front, sometimes slightly to the back. This is a really common thing. If you meet spinners and you shake their hands, they quite often have this. And if the best way of explaining it is if you've ever played uh, the guitar, and the I end haven't. of your um, <laughs> well, when you play guitar, the end of your fingers get really hard, mm. and it's exactly the same thing with spin. But then, because these guys are ripping the ball so much, eventually their skin rips open. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Managing that is a big part of being a professional spin bowler. So my favorite story is Bryce McGain, who basically never had to really worry about that his whole life because he just played on the weekends. Suddenly becomes a professional cricketer, and by the end of his first full season with Victoria, his fingers almost, you know, not there anymore. It's almost, it's almost <laughs> dripping, off, dripping off, right? And that's this is a thing that happens a lot. It happens to young spinners as well. So sometimes you'll see a young spinner early in the season will take a lot of wickets, and the back half of the first class season they can't take any wickets because their finger is. In pain, they don't know how to bowl with it in pain, and most importantly, they don't know how to harden the skin. 
Uh, you will, of course, I've done videos about this before, Barry, I mean, you'll love this, that, you know, <laughs> it's always been thought of in cricket that urine hardens your skin. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and so the spin bowlers dip their hands in. In fact, I was talking to a, a, someone the other day and they were telling me that they'd done it as well. And I had to tell them. I wonder them, how Moyne feels about that. Well, I mean, <laughs> I never heard of Moen doing it, to be fair, but I certainly heard of quite a few others. Um, I should Swanee tell you. Swanee did it, right? Graham Swan well, Swanee, was a big. Swanee was once said to have done it and then he said he never did. But I think he did do mm. it. But um, he feel free to come on the podcast and disagree with me, Swanee. But the point is that um, it doesn't work. And mm. the urine does not, in fact, harden your skin. But they do mm-hmm. use a lot of different things. I think it was, um, I think it was Tim May because he was he was a bit like Moen. He really ripped the ball, and so his finger would fall apart. He actually had something that he put on his finger in between games to harden the skin. Um, just pointing all that out for I think not everyone quite understood. It wasn't particularly well explained um, uh, everywhere uh, when the thing happened with Bowie and Ali. We don't expect that to happen right with Rayon. I mean, it's very rare for that to happen, but you do see situations where the fingers do go, and then some some spinners never get it um, because of the way they bowl or their 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 skin is just incredibly strong from that perspective. Anyway, just wanted that full story out there. Uh, let's do World Cup qualifiers. All right. So, so sir. Um, Shall we start with Ireland? I thought that is, I think that's the most important one. Obviously, there's still a couple of um, storylines to go with Zimbabwe playing so well. Um, Sri Lanka, I think, is still unbeaten. Scotland are unbeaten Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, There's certainly going to be a bit of a race for those top two positions. But the team we know who is not going there is Ireland. Uh, From a financial point of view, they've already got a, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying this, that they were given a loan by the ICC which they will now not be able to pay back, I would assume, because they were. I think they were getting that loan in order to give themselves enough money for when they got to the next World Cup that they would get money back. So uh, they're now in a lot of strife financially. Um, But I think the bigger thing from a cricket point of view is that one-day cricket was kind of their thing. It's Mm. not only how we all got to know them, which obviously was was very, very important in the first place, but also of recent times, you know, beating South Africa at home, beating the West Indies in a series over there Mm -hmm. that played a lot of good cricket. They should have already qualified for the World Cup before now. Um, And instead, they've got there. And this is, I would say, out of the last three tournaments, they've had two absolute shockers. So they had a shocker in the UAE for the World T20. They then played very well in Australia, and we all got Mm -hmm. excited again. And now they've gone and, and had another shocker there's a lot of questions to be asked about Irish cricket. We know that, you know, did the podcast with Nathan where he basically talked about the fact that they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't have played that test match. They're going to hear more and more about that mm-hmm. test match that they weren't particularly competitive in. Um, but yes, I, I do think so. From that perspective, um, it is uh, huge for Ireland cricket not to go through. And from what I've seen, they haven't really played very good cricket in this tournament. Absolutely not. I would say it's absolutely shambolic the way they've gone out. I know we were talking about this quite a few podcasts back when we were discussing the Irish Test match against England. And I actually made that point that they've had quite a bit of success in limited overs cricket and ODI cricket in particular. You mentioned those wins versus South Africa and the West Indies. Those are big. And generally, you saw Irish cricket, Irish cricket's limited overs trajectory on the rise. You'd see them take teams deep, push hard. You've had some great young talents come into that team, right? You've got Josh Little, Harry Tector, Lorcan Tucker. All of these guys seem to mean business. Curtis Curtis Camphor is another one. He and wasn't in the first he, game. He wasn't even in the first game. And then he came back and slammed a ton. He scored, what, I'm 120? So, I mean... Crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he rescued Ireland as well in that game. I think George Dockrell performing with the bat was actually mm. a positive because they could have used his spin as well in India. But it never came to that because they lost, what, 3-3? Three and three? 
is it Ireland? That's I think what it was, and it's just really, so, yeah. really sad to see a team. Uh, 2007 is when they first made it to the World Cup, and then instantly defeated Pakistan and made it to the next round. So that's always going to be part of Irish cricket folklore. But then ever since, you know, we saw them dip a bit and then come back strong. And this mm. was young talent that was pushing Ireland forward. And I actually thought that they might be one of those three, four teams right at the end who would be pushing for that qualification spot. So yeah, the fact that they haven't made it, you know, past the first round, the fact that they're in financial strife now and them not qualifying has, you know, put their cricket in jeopardy. These are all really, really bad things for Irish cricket. And I, I feel for them because I, I wanted them to do well. I wanted Irish cricket to propel. And I guess in the larger scheme of things, you'd have to question whether this is a good move or not by the ICC to just have 10 teams in a World Cup. Because you don't want, you know, these sort of nations to miss out and, mm-hmm. you know, these cricketers to probably opt for some other country or first-class cricket and just give up on their international careers. Because already, you know, we've seen that a fair few players haven't been able to participate in the World Cup qualifiers because of their first-class commitments. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's there's obviously massive issues there. I think... Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, no one really thinks that a 10-team World Cup has ever been a good idea or even a 12-team World Cup is particularly good because you look at this tournament and the cricket that's being played and you would have to say that... I mean, the UAE haven't won a game yet mm-hmm. and I actually thought they've played some really good cricket at times and, and have looked quite good. USA, I haven't seen as much of the USA. I'd, mm-hmm. I, assuming uh, on the results that they're probably not quite at that level. But they had... what They lost by 30 runs against the West Indies. They had a um, guy bat in their middle order make 100 for them. You know, Also lost they, a bowler. The USA lost a bowler. Uh, he got called out for uh, so let me uh, just, faulty action. <laughs> so I, I just want to... This is a, a huge bugbear I have. And I've seen some people blame the USA and the USA bowling coaches a lot. And I understand that. If you have a bowler with a questionable action then there is a part of the team that should be involved with this. But what happens every time we go to these World Cup qualifiers is some team is propped up by one player who is probably has a slightly dodgy action of which many umpires have seen before. They've been in other... Mm. uh, All the way through, there's plenty of footage of them. The ICC have put some of these games up on their TV channel, right? (laughs) All of these things, and then suddenly they get to the qualifier and all these guys get called. You shouldn't be getting called at the qualifier. You should be getting called well before the qualifier. And it does annoy me that that keeps happening. But yes. Um, but the point is, I think we have, I mean, if you have a look at the moment, Zimbabwe played mm-hmm. exceptionally. So th- they're obviously brilliant. Netherlands, um, I thought I played good. I'm not sure about the Netherlands bowling attack. At the, they in the might middle just of... beat the West Indies right now as we speak. because they're I was about to say, what's the score? Balls. You're right. They did, yeah. yeah, so 34 or 14. So a bit of an, uh, <laughs> we'll tell you by the end of the podcast uh, whether, whether that has happened or not. But their plates, I think their batting is really good. They don't mm-hmm. have the ability to keep anyone down when, when they're bowling, uh, which is why what did, West Indies made 374 against them. And I think mm-hmm. Zimbabwe might have made 500 against them if they'd had their full 50 <laughs> overs. Um, and we've seen that before. We saw England almost make 500 against them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've played well. West Indies not playing well for a full member nation, mm. but certainly playing yeah. some good cricket. Sri Lanka have done pretty well so far. Scotland have played pretty well, considering it's not their major team. Oman and uh, and UAE have played some good cricket. Mm. Ireland, obviously not a bad team. There's a lot of talent there, is my point. And I don't think there's any reason really to be limiting those. And I'm not sure how global cricket is helped by good teams not making World Cups. I think global mm. cricket is helped by having a really good, rigorous qualification tournament. I love that that we're having this, but I don't think it should be in a situation of which that we're only doing that and no one's, you know, 
I don't know what the viewing figures are, but they won't be massive. There's no point mm-hmm. having a great qualification tournament and then not having teams that people actually would like to follow during the tournament. You'd rather have more teams in um, from that perspective. And you're always going to have... Anytime you have a World Cup qualification, we see this in basketball, we see this in football, all, you know, all the top sports, you're always going to have a team that qualifies and then something goes wrong when they get to the major tournament and they can't do it. Like that's, yeah. th- There's nothing you can do about that. Uh, so that's Ireland. Uh, I haven't seen as much. I mean, actually, I'm going to leave West Indies for the next 12 Are balls. Are we? Are we going to leave West Indies? Just for two, <laughs> We're going to leave them for the next 12 balls. Oh, right, Indies. all right. Just to see, because obviously it could be the biggest story of all time if Netherlands chased We, we could talk a bit about Zimbabwe. Of course, that's well, a really I want to talk story. about Scotland a little bit as well. Mm. Scotland is interesting. I don't know if you read Usman Semyadin's piece today about the uh, the racism stuff. Uh, one thing that I don't think is as well known is like Island Cricket is a really small organization, right? And Island Cricket is like quintuple the size of Scottish cricket when it comes to professionalism, organizing money, staff, and all and all those sorts of things. And so we really learn about that in, you know, through Usman's article, you know, there's a lot of good details there. And obviously someone who worked for Scottish cricket, I could give you a hundred more mm-hmm. details of, you know, um, they had a guy called Smudge, uh, their former wicketkeeper, who when mm-hmm. I when I was with the team, he had four separate jobs. Like that all oh, should have wow. been full time jobs for anyone else uh, you know just the way that they do things is just absolutely um not ideal uh but that's what they have to do having said that they've come to this you know we didn't know how they go in these qualifiers because they don't have the strongest team uh, available to them you know that as you said before that players who are basically taking their first class careers don't, don't want to give up their county positions which makes sense mm-hmm. because that's where they make the money but to see Leask and Barron- um, uh, barrington they could do with a Barrington for Scotland, but uh, 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 and Richie Barrington doing so well for for them, and then being in a position where they've won three on the trot as well. I, they were gutted um, in the last World Cup that they didn't make that second round. Um, they obviously did very very well in the previous World T Twenty World Cup. Um, there's a lot of talent around Scottish cricket, but you, when you read Osman's piece, you do realize how fragile the entire um, nature of it is. But I think they've done really, really well. I, was it the Island game that was least made the big score, made 90 odd, I think, that game and came yeah. back? Yeah, I think he made just, 90 odd, yeah. Well, I thought that was important is that mm-hmm. obviously Ireland and Scotland have a natural rivalry that's, that's been around. It's, in the 80s was a very big thing in their cricket was them playing each other and all those sorts of things. But it's also interesting because remember it was Ireland who knocked Scotland out of the last World Cup when Ireland were massively behind in that game when Dockrell and Camphor came together and they smashed mm-hmm. all those runs. So I, I think, what's, what's Dockrell? It was Camphor. Anyway, it, it's Curtis Camphor and whoever was at the other end. The other person's not. It was Dockrell and Camphor. It was, quite yeah. sure. It, it's basically Camphor and then no one else exists in my mind. But you know, so then they have a similar situation where Scotland was so far behind and to come back, I thought was really, really important. Not sure they'll qualify, but I've been really impressed with the way that they've played. Yeah, and this is not the first time we've been impressed by Scotland's cricket team, you know. I think it was that UAE World Cup in the T20s. Uh, they played really well. Um, they also beat Bangladesh, which was big for them. And they made it past the first round. And yeah, I think that was huge. And I think they do have some really talented players. And, and Michael Leask is one of them. You mentioned Richie Barrington as well. I think Safian Sharif is a really good seamer, mm. for instance. Uh, Took he's four for really the other impressive. day, didn't he? Cleaned up the tail yeah. to, to, to ice that game. So they've got that talent and it just needs to be nurtured. And it's just that this entire situation in the UK... I know that the racism bit is also very problematic and that must have its own challenges. We're mentioning Safiyan Sharif, so that's that's going to be interesting over there. I know Majid Haq 
has had troubles in the past and those are quite well documented but um hopefully you know if if it's not you know an issue within the unit itself and it's not something that is uh, you know a, a roadblock for them to overcome whilst they're playing these tournaments or this this qualifier tournament in particular i think they are very very well capable of upsetting a team can they make it to india 2023 probably not like i i wouldn't really give them much of a chance because you've got zimbabwe who are playing you know the mm. the best cricket since andy flower or grand flower th- those days really i don't think they've been better than they are right now since then and and i would argue that this is the best pace bowling attack that zimbabwe have ever had uh, you look at richard engarava blessing no, no, Wait, then, we're going to get on zimbabwe don't go yeah. too early on zimbabwe zimbabwe's good mm-hmm. but 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 scotland i think they just lack that x factor to go consistently beat all of these teams like you've got west indies sri lanka zimbabwe and i don't think they have it in them to you know usurp those guys but other than that i think barring the issues that you mentioned i think scottish cricket has done well over the past few years no no i i think that so i mean if you do, i haven't done a power rankings i haven't seen quite enough of it to do this but mm. i would say that you know sri lanka and zimbabwe would probably be one and two i think scotland have an argument to be the third best team which mm-hmm. if with that in mind allows them to be close enough to maybe steal away into the world cup right like you know if, if something oh my god goes nine wrong, runs Nine runs required in six deliveries. The West Indies might lose this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I do think that Scotland are not that far away. So I think that's quite interesting. Mm. While um, Netherlands played these final uh, six balls and scored the nine runs, uh, so that means they got twenty-one runs off the last over. What the hell is happening <laughs> in that game? But uh, but but um, so from, from that perspective, Zimbabwe. You talked about it. Best bowling attack I've ever had. I think you're right. Not only that, though, it's, there's interesting things about the bowling attack is that I think in two of these games, they've gone in with eight uh, bowlers, right? Mm. So they are legitimately using... It's not like they're just relying on four or five, you know, frontline bowlers. They are absolutely going all in uh, with, their, with their bowling talent. Batting is good, but I don't think... I don't think I look at their batting lineup and, and think that this is, you know, a world-class batting lineup, but it's mm-hmm. very deep and there's a lot of different kinds of batting that they can throw at it. Obviously, Williams has been fantastic at times. But you look at Joy Lord Gumby, and I don't just mention him because he's got the best name in cricket at the moment. But <laughs> but you look at him and you're just like, he's not that much better than someone like Andy McBride, who we know probably shouldn't be opening for Ireland, right? You know, he might develop to be a better player than that. But right at the moment, you look at him and he's quite limited in many different ways. But it, it's a batting lineup because of the fact that Sikandar Raza and Ryan Burl can bat six, seven, eight, uh, because of their bowling skills. It just means it never ends, right? Whereas mm-hmm. some of these other teams, you feel like their batting is going to end really early on. It's, it's fascinating. Um, Gautam, so, Gautam actually has a, a, as a, a, what do you call that? One of those? A super chat, which remember you can all, yeah. But before he's actually got another question here. He says, is this the best Zimbabwean team ever considering their form? I don't think it is. I think mm-hmm. if you go back to some of those 90s teams uh, and you have a look at, you know, Campbell's uh, or Alistair Campbell's streak, Flowers, um, strings. Uh, there's a lot of lot of families uh, involved at that stage. I think there's probably a slightly deeper team than we see now. Um, uh, but this is the only other one that is close to that, right? This is the only other yeah. team that you would go. It, it deserves to be on 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 that level. Um, uh, what I, I I just love the way that they played. I think it was the Netherlands chase where I saw people early on going. Oh, they're going too slow because I think they were what, chasing whatever it was over three hundred. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it going, they are setting this up perfectly. And once they started to explode, Netherlands looked like club bowlers, and they just got mm-hmm. absolutely massacred against them. Uh, anything on Zimbabwe? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've mentioned quite a lot of it, but I would actually disagree in the sense that I think the team composition is quite good. Now, sure, Joy Lord, Gumby, Lord of all happiness in that team and one of the best names in cricket, of course. He might not have the best strike rate, but he's getting consistent runs and he keeps wicket. He can bat. And he keeps wicket as well, right? So he's adding more utility over there. And what it does is it allows some of the more experienced guys to come in when the game is at a more critical juncture. Now, you have Sean... uh, I almost mix these two up. Craig Irvine and Sean Williams. Yeah, they they just look always so similar to me. Uh, You've got those guys who have tons of experience and who we know can do the job with the bat. And then you've got Sikandar Raza Bhatt, who is arguably one of the hottest commodities in limited overs cricket currently in the world. In the last uh, 24... Well, not 24 months, but since the start of 2022, he's got, what, 11... Man of the Match Awards, which is the most by any cricketer in this period. And you've seen him do it with both bat and ball and in the field. He is one of those three-dimensional cricketers. Sure, he's a much better batter than he is a bowler, but he provides you another option and he's a live wire in the field and he lifts everyone up. I think he is a very crucial um, cog in the Zimbabwean team. And when you have enough of those guys performing or like three or four of those guys performing performing up top, I think they have that pace bowling attack to rattle the opposition. Now, Engarava and Blessing Muzarabani, I rank very, very highly. I think that had they been bowlers of any other country, we would have just talked about them more. But Tendai Chitara is someone who's been around for a while. This guy mm-hmm. has a lot of experience. He's played the 2015 World Cup and not a lot of those players in the Zimbabwe unit have. Right? Sikandar Razabat has the uh, Sean Irvine and Sorry, not Sean Irvin. Craig Irvine and Sean Williams <laughs> have. And I think they have the experience to definitely make it uh, past this qualifier round. I know they were devastated when they failed four years ago or five years ago in the 2018 one. Yeah. But I think that Zimbabwe mean business. And I, I, I would say that, you know, we might just end up calling this Zimbabwe's best ever unit. I think that might be on the cards. We're not there yet, but it's no. very much a possibility. I just, I, I don't think... Uh, Joy Lord Gumby or Innocent Kaya or Luke Jongwe are anywhere near the levels of players that Zimbabwe have had mm. before. And I think Neil Johnson was a really good one back in the day, wasn't yeah, they? They had so many World good Cup. players back in the old days. Yeah. And I think that this current crop, their top players are fantastic. And once you have a good bowling lineup like that, right? They have two things that any cricket team in the world would die for. Like much better teams mm-hmm. would die for the positional flexibility. As I said, mm-hmm. they could bat Raza at seven and Ryan Burl at eight if they wanted to, or they could bat mm-hmm. them at, they could bat Raza at five and Burl at six, which I think they might have done in the last game. I mean, that, Wesley uh, Madhavira is batting at number three. And yeah, he's and not so, generally a top order player. Well, that's what I mean. So their top mm. order is a bit like Ireland. Or, mm. In fact, it's not even as strong as Ireland, but it's a little bit where you go, oh, I, I'm not sure this is a top team, but it's a fantastic um, being because they have the bowling that they can be more flexible but they've also got this new spirit under dave houghton to be as Mm. aggressive as possible but let's have a look at the other game uh netherlands now need three runs and two balls and dutt was out uh alzari joseph got his hundredth wicket according to cricket info Mm. as well uh and so it's logan van beek who's done the damage i love logan van beek because he's like a like he tries really, really hard in cricket. Mm-hmm. And and for those who don't remember, he's the reason England didn't pass 500 in that uh, ODI uh, against the Netherlands. He bowled a fantastic 49th over where I think he went for about seven runs um, uh, there. So, uh, you know, he's he should be back on strike, I would assume. So they've got a huge chance of winning that at the moment uh, oh, yeah. with, him, w- with him out there as well. But but yeah, so from, from that point of view... Uh, 
you know, I, I'm not sure that Zimbabwe is every facet of their cricket makes them a top team, which we have mm-hmm. seen from them at times before. However, when you break it down and you see the things that they can do, and we just, just to go back, you talked about all the great bowling options they have, right? Mm-hmm. That's like Brandon Mavuta, who hasn't played as much um, of recent times, who I think is a fantastic bowler as well, the leg spinner. But you look at all these fantastic bowling options, and yet you go to their team cards, and they're bowling seven and eight bowlers. And why are they bowling so many bowlers? That is because um, of this flexibility they have within their team, which means that when you're mm. captaining them, you actually have the choice in any situation to pick the best option rather than um, uh, just anything else. Uh, scores the level? They scores need the one. Level. They need one off one ball and we're going to finish the podcast with this as well which of course to most people listening to it on the actual podcast will be nothing <laughs> at all um uh, but yeah so uh scores are tied 374 apiece netherlands need one run of one ball logan and van beek is on strike so logan this is van very beek, much he's got 28 of 13 uh yeah. with three fours and a six that stolen by by the way uh, which I think went back, went through to the wicketkeeper um, on the, what was that? The fourth ball, the over, probably is going to be the difference uh, between the two there. But this is, look, whether West Indies win or lose, right? This is, this is, I saw jo- George Jobel say how sad it is. And I get it. I don't, I don't want to take away anyone's sadness. If you're over the age of 35 specifically and you have mm-hmm. grown up watching the West Indies and they maybe be your second favorite team or even your favorite team, even if you weren't from the West Indies, I think you're allowed to be sad if they miss this World Cup. Mm-hmm. But you also have to be very honest that this is how sports works, right? They are going up yeah. against a depleted Netherlands side here in a mm-hmm. must win game for them. Um, and, you know, we've got that they've allowed the Netherlands to score th- exactly as many runs as they have, right, in this game. But whatever happens from here, they've allowed them to score exactly as many runs. The West Indies should never be in this situation. And West Indies cricket needs to know that going ahead. And having that near miss against Scotland in 2018 mm-hmm. obviously didn't do the damage. If they don't make this World Cup, it could very much do the damage. I mean, they have nothing but themselves or no oh, one but out. themselves it's to a tie. This. Oh, he's out? It's a tie. Does it remain a tie or are we headed towards a super over? We're probably headed towards a super over now. Uh, court, court hold up, old Joseph. Oh, uh, <laughs> absolutely. This is, for, for those, there are a lot of young people now who are completely uh, used to watching everything on streams and everything else. Um, this is how we used to watch overseas cricket, which was cricket for ball by ball. Or you would have to like wake up and get a radio broadcast of like, you know, someone saying, and last night in the cricket, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, uh, Australia won a classic test match and you haven't seen any of it, right? Or you get the newspaper and you have to go through and the newspaper doesn't even always have all the results because they had to print the newspaper at the wrong time. Um, fantastically interesting there. Um, uh tie game. Uh, let's finish off this podcast because otherwise we'll be here for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And we'll just go to Gautam's question, which says, Ashwin will play in center if Hardik plays Tess as the fourth player and Jadeja plays as the second mm-hmm. spinner. At home, they play the extra batter with three spinners, one pacer and Hardik. Akshar bats at 10. Too unrealistic. Look, I, I just think he's the best bowler um, around. And I think when it comes to Ashwin uh, in that situation, he's so fantastic and he's certainly a player that you want to be able to um, put into your side i know you know you and i have talked before um ab- about the fact that you know Jadeja could play as a batter in some situations without a wicketkeeper that makes it a little bit trickier but if hardik plays then hardik plays the shadul takur role right 
He, mm-hmm. he bowls the 10 or 15 overs when they need it. He's a better batter than Chardul, obviously. He's probably, he might even be a better bowler than him as well. Um, mm. And so that allows them to play Ashwin. But also, they probably still need Rashad Pant because you want the extra batting from your wicketkeeper position so that you, you, you don't want to be in a situation where Jadeja's batting at five and batting at number six is Hardik and batting at number seven is a wicketkeeper that you don't quite mm-hmm. trust. So th- there's a lot of balance to that that hasn't quite worked. All, You've all also got to speak- look at Hardik's fitness, right? Will his back hold up? Can he play test cricket? These are all questions that we don't have answers to do. Yeah, well, when you know, we, we know that if he played it, he would be fine at it. But... Is that the best use of his, like if he's going to captain the mm-hmm. T Twenty and the One Day Team, right? In, yeah. in the next couple of years, and he becomes that guy, do you want to also want to invest on investing in being your all rounder? It's a very very inter- interesting situation. The whole Indian thing of having the two best spinners in the world, them both being able to bat and them not being able to fit them into every batting uh, or into every lineup, is such a remarkably odd situation because they should be living in the dream and instead it seems like they always get it wrong no if they pick him they get it wrong if they don't pick him they get it wrong um i i just think that there's two issues for me with ashwin bowling overseas the first one is that from a very young age they didn't bowl him enough overseas Uh, you know he played i thought he bowled brilliantly in australia one summer was that 10 11 i think and they didn't play much after that. And, and it was because his figures didn't look good. But for a, a spinner coming to Australia, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and then the, the other part of that, of course, is is that with Jadeja, you have someone who is numerically as good as Ashwin uh, when it comes to playing you know, overseas. But the big difference is that Ashwin is a threat to batters all the way through the, the match. And Jadeja generally is a proper sort of more conventional spinner that comes into it towards the end. Anyway, I think we'll finish uncovered there because we still have another. We're, we're going to be going and doing footmarks in a minute <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, but thank you to everyone um, in the comments. Uh, it is a super over. We can't we can't take you to the super over, everyone. You're on your own for the super over. We did the weirdest <laughs> commentary that anyone's ever done on this sort of stuff as well. Thank you to Gautam for for his comment. Thank you to Bayram. You can find him on um, Twitter at Def Mango, or if you want, he is uh, over at Grassroots Cricket, or he's here all the time as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can find me absolutely everywhere. Please support us by following our new Jared Kimber podcast YouTube channel on YouTube. Even if you still want to come over to, to the other group for now, uh, for, for the next couple of months, that's fine. But subscribe to the other one because eventually all of these shows will only be over there. But thank you, and we'll talk to you again very, very soon. But this has been Uncovered with Jared Kimber and Bayram Kazi. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresen is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts, and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account. Podcast Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.
Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now, uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, right? Gathering information, you get buy-in from every team, uh, you know, following up. That's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. 